Welcome to the Different Functional Podcast. I am Autumn, the older sister, and my fact of the day is that the majority of my childhood memories were emotionally perceived and encoded, which makes it very difficult for me to logically or sequentially recall a lot of events from our childhood. And if you're waiting to hear from Ivy, the younger sister, and to hear her fact of the day, you're going to be waiting just a little while longer. And that's because today we're going to do something a little unique. Ivy and I have previously talked about how when you come from a dysfunctional or a traumatic home, a lot of times the memories that you have and the experiences that you share are drastically different. Even though you went through the same experience at the same time, the emotionally charged nature of it, the role you held in the family, all of these other factors jump in so that by the end, the life that one person lived in that home is not the life that the other person lived. And sometimes when both of those people are describing the same memory, it's almost as though it's two different households or not even the same situation at all. And Ivy and I were tossing back and forth about this idea and we're like, you know, how can we really highlight that and discuss this in the podcast here? And we thought, you know, what if we talk about a single event that both Ivy and I experienced, but her and I had never talked about before? And so that's what we're doing. We're going to blind record our perception of a single event that we have never previously discussed. And then we're going to mash them all up and look at those differences. So in today's episode, we're going to look at that single event. First, you're going to hear from me and my perception of the event. Then later in the show, Ivy will jump in with her perception of the event. And then in exploring those differences and highlighting what was cohesive and what wasn't and why there were differences and why there were misperceptions and why we think we remember things differently. And I think this is going to be really interesting because, as I said, with my fact of the day, most of my my memories are very emotional. And when I've talked to Ivy, she's indicated that a lot of her memories from childhood are very logical and coherent, but divorced of emotion. So while she's able to often recall details and sequence of events, all I typically have are emotional impressions, sensory snippets, and then some sort of logical fact voiceover. But it's all like on a faulty time lapse so I get bright moments of overly focused coherency surrounded by fuzzy blurs of assumption and best guess estimates. So it'll be really interesting to see the difference in how Ivy describes this and how I describe it, not just because of the different roles we held in the family, but also because of the different ways that we recorded our memories at the time. So let's jump into it. The memory that we're going to review today is the day that our parents decided they were going to get divorced. So for me, I think I was 18. I have assigned that to the time that I was 18. I don't really do well with numbers or dates, so I'm not sure. But in my mind, I was 18. So that would have made Ivy 12. And it was either on Christmas or Thanksgiving. I just remember it was a holiday. I don't remember which holiday. Our parents had a, a shit marriage. If you've not listened a lot to the podcast or we've not really been clear about it during the podcast, it was a horrible marriage. It just was no good for anybody. They were so toxic for each other. I really think they should have been divorced long, long ago or even ideally maybe never married at all um, because it was so damaging, especially, especially, especially to our mother. It was just so damaging to her. So the fact that they were going to get divorced wasn't necessarily a bad thing. That was a good thing. 
but everything in the household at that point in time was just so much trauma. It was nothing but daily walking on eggshells and fear. And mom, I believe at that time was almost sleeping most of the time. She was trying her best to get back on her feet, get a job, but wasn't doing very well at that, wasn't succeeding. I remember tiptoeing around a lot, trying to not wake her up so I wouldn't have to deal with soothing her or her emotional outbursts. Um, and I was, of course, taking care of the household, taking care of Ivy. So it's Christmas, it's Thanksgiving, I don't know which one. And grandma's out there. She didn't live with us, but I must have come and pick her up. I don't know if I did it the night before that morning. I have no idea, but it's the morning time. Grandma's out at the house. The stove has been broken for years. So the only thing we have to cook with is a microwave or a turkey roaster. And luckily, since it's Christmas Thanksgiving, we're supposed to be having turkey. So there's a turkey in the turkey roaster. Most of the day, I don't remember. I think it was just me and grandma sitting on the couch, possibly watching TV. I remember grandma being really nervous about whether or not the turkey was done. She was a very, very anxious person and cooking made her anxious. And there was a lot of tension in the household. And she usually wasn't at our house. So I think all those things combined to just make her super anxious. So I remember like every few minutes going and being like, is the turkey done? Do we, you know, with the timer and this long discussion, discussions between her and I of how do we know if it's done or not. And this predates the internet. So it's not like we could just Google when is your turkey done. So we are like freaking out about whether or not this turkey is done. And at some point, my father comes out and he's in his garments. And for those of you who don't know, the Mormon church, instead of wearing underwear, they wear garments. It's a top piece and a bottom piece, but it's essentially underwear. And he's running around as underwear, which in my mind is kind of disrespectful because like my grandma's there, but whatever. And he says, I'm divorcing your mother and just leaves it at that and disappears. And we're just like, WTF. Um, again, I don't really have memory of what's going on with Ivy or even where Ivy is. At this point, I'm not sure, but I know she was there. I don't think my brother was. And if I remember right, my mom was still asleep, I want to say in my brother's bedroom because he wasn't living there anymore. And so we didn't see her really all day because my grandma is autistic, though, and it was Christmas Thanksgiving. We were going to have a family meal. We had already started cooking the turkey. And so there wasn't any way for us to break that autistic idea that you would not have a meal just because life was falling apart and everything was exploding was irrelevant. We had planned to have a meal. So we were going to have a meal. So even though it was horrible tense, even though I'm upset, grandma's upset, I'm assuming Ivy's upset. We go ahead and put everything on the table. Mom refuses to join us. Dad comes out. We have the most tense awkward fucking meal ever because my grandma that I keep talking about is my mom's mom not my dad's mom so she's very much on my mom's side I remember her just I mean being almost shaking with I'm not sure anger resentment hatred she never really liked our father as far as I knew and so she was very upset but she wasn't going to say anything directly to him and if I remember right the entire meal he's just bad mouthing our mother and of course my grandma's right there I don't remember if she said anything. I was just angry. We get through the meal. I remember going in and checking on my mom. She was really out of it. I think I gave her a hug. Uh, at some point, I guess we cleaned up. I have no idea. But it got dark and it was time for grandma to go home. And so 
we took grandma home. We drove her. It was 30 minutes away to the next town. I'm pretty sure I took Ivy with me. I don't think I would have left her at home because the situation felt so unsafe. And no memory of the drive there, no memory of the drive back, no memory of dropping grandma off. Next thing I know, Ivy and I are coming back into the house. It's the middle of the night. It's the country. Everything's dark. It's kind of creepy living in the country at night anyways because it is dark and creepy. And we get into the house and we're used to the house being full of just tension and fear. Uh, And like I said, that walking on eggshells, it was never a pleasant experience coming home at that time. It was always just a sense of dread and putting back on this this armor to try to protect yourself and this silence so that nobody would hear you. And we walk into this and it's so much worse than ever. And so we had tons of dogs and cats and I don't remember encountering a single one of them this entire time. I have no idea where they are. The house just feels malevolent, just horrible, scary, not good, bad. At some point, I remember sitting on the dining room table back to back with Ivy, just both of us being so scared to do anything, to go further in the house, to leave, to do anything. And I believe at one point, and I don't know if this memory is accurate, but like I said, I'm sitting on the table back to back with my Ivy, back to back with my sister Ivy. It's dark and I've got the portable phone in my hand. And I'm not sure if I am calling grandma or about to call grandma, but at some point I believe we end up calling her back and just asking her if we can stay with her that night. And so again, it's the middle of the night and usually my grandma would be very anxious and be like, yeah, it's probably not good for you to drive at home or drive at dark because it is like back country roads in Missouri, so twisty turny. But if I remember right, she didn't have any objections and she said, sure, come back. And so we left and I don't have any memory of leaving the house, locking up, getting back to grandma's, anything like that. So that's my perception of the day we find out, we found out our mother and our father were going to be divorced. Like I said, it's not very sequential. It's very lots of emotions, lots of snippets, lots of intensity. And like I said, for me, that's the biggest thing I I really remember, like I said, I have that snippet of sitting on the couch with grandma. I have the snippet of staring at that turkey repeatedly, that little red pop-up thing. And I have that snippet of sitting back to back on our kitchen table with Ivy clutching a phone. But the majority of what I remember that day is that emotions, like that first part of the day being just, this is another horrible day in this life. And grandma's anxious, so I'm trying to soothe her anxiety, but I'm also not playing into it, but to some degree I am playing into it because when we're consumed with worrying about the turkey, we don't have to worry about anything else. And so I was very much just participating in that anxiety. And then I remember just feeling like the entire floor dropped out from under me when our father told us that he was going to be divorcing our mother. I also have a definite feel of disgust when he walked out because our parents walked around in their garments, their underwear so much. And to me, it was so sexualized and so filthy and trashy to be walking around in your underwear when people were around, even if they were your own kids, even if they're own family. I don't know why I have that, but that's just kind of what's in my head. And so I remember just this feeling of disgust when my dad walked out in his underwear and while he was sitting at the table eating. I remember 
again, the feeling that my grandma had, not so much my feeling, but feeling as though my grandma was just so angry at our father for bad mouthing and so unable to say anything. And I just felt like keeping my eyes down and trying to stay quiet and not feel and not think. And I think I was in shock at that point. So I was just absorbing what my grandma had. And because she was my safety and security at that point, you know, kind of ready to defend her more than our mom, even though I loved her or more than anything else. And again, I feel so horrible because I don't even know where Ivy is during this point. So I'm freaking out. I've got to be 17 or 18. I have no cognizant memory of Ivy being part of this at all, even though I know she had to have been there until that evening when we got back after dropping grandma off. And again, like I said, I remember that horrible, intense, malevolent fear. Like that... (sighs) That emotion that most horror movies try to build inside of you where your heart's about ready to escape and you know somebody's going to jump out at you any moment and they're going to slit your throat in some horrible, torturous, painful way. That kind of fear was what I had in that night. And yeah, that's, that's my memory. So I'll wrap my portion up and then I will toss it over so that Ivy's portion can come up next. Hello, I'm Ivy, the younger sister. And my fact of the day is that every single day, right before I go to bed, I take a shower and it has to be right before I go to sleep. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, there's nothing better than the feeling of climbing into bed when you're just freshly clean. But the other reason for that is it's kind of a therapeutic daily ritual for me to just wash away all of the stress and the dirt and the grime from the day. And if I don't do that, I have a very difficult time falling asleep, if I can at all. All right. Um, I guess it's time for me to jump into my memory of the day that we found out that our parents were divorcing. And, you know, when Autumn and I first talked about doing this episode, we both had the same thought that this is the memory that we should go over. And I didn't realize how much I had, in a sense, blocked out the the events of that of that day. Because there are so many things from my childhood that I still remember really clearly. But even though this was such a big event, I don't remember that day very clearly. And I think it's because when you're under that amount of stress and crisis, it's it's like the whole day just goes by in a blur. You're scrambling to keep up and everything feels fuzzy and awful and nothing really makes sense. And you have all of this fear and this anxiety and all jumbles up together. And it's really hard in the aftermath to recall anything clearly. And I imagine Autumn's memories from that day are probably hazy as well. So I will just start from the beginning. Um, I remember that it was Christmas morning when we had called home to see what time we should come over for dinner. Because even though my family hated each other, we still got together for holidays and would have a meal together, which was painfully awkward and tense because there's just so many things that were never said, or if they were said, they were said in very aggressive ways with yelling and fighting and just putting each other down. 
So we were, at least I, <laughs> but I imagine all of us were dreading going out to the house to, uh, to have Christmas dinner with my father and my mom. Uh, my brother was away on his mission at the time. So we, I think we called out to the house or maybe they called us, Forrest called us. I don't remember exactly which one it was actually. But I was not the one that that was on the phone. I, I think it was Autumn that was on the phone. And while she was talking, I had a sense that something was wrong. I could feel that something was wrong. And when she got off the phone, I don't even remember exactly how she told me, but she told me that our parents were getting divorced and that Forrest had told her, I'm pretty sure. But we still had to go out to the house anyway, because <laughs> it was Christmas and we didn't know what else to do. And I'm sure we all wanted to check on mom because we all had the very strong sense she would not take it well. And there was the definite threat that she might try to kill herself yet again. So we went out to the house for Christmas. And as I recall, I don't think we saw mom the entire day. Uh, I imagine she was tucked back in the corner of the house where our brother's room was probably in pitch darkness and likely intoxicated and trying to forget everything that had happened and trying to numb herself out from the misery and stress and fear she must have been feeling. And even though at that time in my life, I was, I was generally terrified of our mother because our relationship was so strained by that point. And in a sense, because of all of the manipulation on the part of my father, mom and I were very much pitted against each other in a lot of ways. And I was really afraid of her. Um, there was not a lot of physical abuse, but she had slapped me around a few times. And a lot of it, though, is I was just afraid of her ever changing moods. And she was just completely unpredictable and very volatile. And there would be times that I would look at her and I would think this, this is not my mom. I don't even know if this person is human. It would feel like she was possessed. So that day was a strange combination of feelings for me because on the one hand, I, I knew how miserable my mom must have been feeling. But on the other hand, I was absolutely terrified of her. And then even further, I was afraid that she would try to kill herself again. And I felt very frozen in fear and indecision. But at the same time, even with all of that, I, I felt some sense of relief because I had always wanted our parents to get divorced, or at least since things had gone really bad. So it was this huge jumble of feelings and it was, it felt like that room that mom was in was in, that was in the back of the house was was almost like the, there was this dark energy barrier around it. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but that's what it felt like. And I don't know that I could have gone in there to check on her, even if I'd wanted to. I'm not sure if Autumn did. I'm not sure if grandma did. I don't remember. Really, all I remember from that day is that feel that you know jumbled 
mess of feelings I was having. And at the base, just all of this fear and tension and awkwardness. And the only thing I really remember from the day itself was sitting ar around the Christmas tree with Forrest and my grandma and my sister. And we were opening presents. And even as a kid, like I knew that was out of place and it was weird that we were opening presents at that time. But now as an adult, I look back in retrospect and I'm just like, God, it was, it was like, in a sense, Forrest had control over all of us. It was like, we were all walking on eggshells. We were all afraid to say anything or, or do anything. And he, as usual for him, can't read a room. Everything is about him. We're sitting there around the Christmas tree opening presents and he's talking about how horrible my mom is and talking about the details of the of him announcing to her that they were getting divorced and the fight that they had. And he seemed belligerent and cruel and <laughs> proud of himself. It, it was very strange. And I don't recall any of us really saying anything at all. I don't remember if we stayed for dinner. I don't remember if we ate. I, I really don't remember anything from being at the house that day other than sitting around the Christmas tree, opening Christmas presents, listening to my father talk horribly about my mother and just wanting to leave. And I didn't as I recall, make eye contact with anybody. I feel like I spent most of that day looking down, but I did glance over at my grandmother on multiple occasions. And I remember that morning before we went to the house, right after we had found out that my parents were getting a divorce, we were all sitting in my grandma's room on her bed, just kind of stunned, like it shouldn't have been shocking, but at the same time, it was shocking because my parents had hated each other for so long and yet they'd stayed together. But we were just all sitting there trying to figure out what to do and just kind of being in shock. And it was the one of the only times that I had ever heard my grandmother cuss. I think there was only one other time, but I remember that morning and I don't remember if she called my father a bastard or if she called him a son of a bitch. I don't remember. But I remember being stunned that my grandmother cussed. But she she said that basically that she wished my mom had never married my father, which I think is something we all probably felt. And that she had always known that Forrest was a son of a bitch because she had watched him before my parents got married. She had watched him get angry at my brother who was probably i think she said he was like 10 at the time like 9 or 10 something like that he had gotten angry at john and he had picked him up and thrown him across the room in a rage and my grandma said that she had never trusted him after that and she had never liked the man so when we were sitting there at the house listening to forrest badmouth my mother I kept glancing at my grandmother and wondering if she would say anything. And I don't remember that she did. And now as an adult, I look back and there's this part of me that's like, why didn't any of us say anything? 
But I know why we didn't because, because it was so wired into us not to. And looking back at that day is one of the moments I first had some sort of awareness or recognition of what the patriarchy was. And it's this sense that forest held sway over all of us. We were all walking on eggshells. We were all fearful. We were all confused and stunned and nobody said anything because one, what, what could you say? And two, would it do any good? Probably not. But it was also just a, you don't say anything because you just don't say anything. And later we, we went back to my grandma's house. Um, and I think Autumn and I had originally been planning to stay the night with her again, but we both and grandma too, we all kind of got worried about mom. And so we decided that Autumn and I would go back out to the house so that we could make sure that mom was safe, that she was okay, and that we would stay the night there. And neither of us wanted to go back. And it was it was late at night. And we drove back to the house, both of us dreading getting there. And this is what I remember most powerfully about that day. We got back to the house that night. And from the moment we stepped out of her truck, both of us got this overwhelming sense of darkness and doom. And it's the closest thing that I think I have ever felt to sheer terror. And I don't think either of us really knew why exactly. I mean, obviously we were under stress and it had been a hard day and it was you know depressing and there were all these things, but in all my life up to that point, I had never felt that level of fear. It felt so primal. And even to this day, I don't think I've ever felt that again. But we we got out of the truck and we walked into the house and the house, which was pitch black and silent, silent as the grave. We couldn't hear my father. We couldn't hear my mother. We knew both of them were more than likely in the house, but everything was dead silent and just black as night. And both of us were so overwhelmed with fear. We didn't even walk down the hallway to go check on mom. We made our way as far as the dining room which was maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 steps from the front door. And we both got so terrified. We crawled up on the dining room table and sat back to back. It felt like there was something there. And I know for people who don't believe in spirits or demons or whatever, it's going to sound insane. And I mean, I even go back and forth about whether or not I believe in those things sometimes, but that night I definitely believed because it felt like the house was full of demons. It, it felt like there was this dark black horrifying presence that was just hanging over the house and Autumn and I sat there on the table. We didn't even turn on any lights. I, and I don't know why. It was just both of us were just operating on 
basic primal fear but we sat on the dining room table back to back whispering to each other about what we should do and we were at that point so afraid to even put our feet down on the floor because it felt like if we did something would reach out from underneath the table or something would come running down the hall at us and we sat there for what felt like hours i'm sure it was only a matter of minutes but we sat there and contemplated what we should do and we whispered back and forth and we finally decided that the only thing that we felt safe to do not even felt safe but the only thing that we could think of to do was to make a run for it so we counted down and we leapt off that table we ran out to the truck and i remember peeling out of the driveway as fast as we could and driving down our gravel road and there is this one corner in the road it was like just at the bottom of kind of a hill and it was a really steep corner but we were so terrified i remember autumn going around that corner of the gravel road so fast that the, the truck fishtailed and for a moment i was afraid that we were going to crash but we didn't and we drove so fast all the way back to our grandma's apartment which is usually i would say probably a 30 minute drive but i would be surprised if it took us more than 20 minutes <laughs> because she was just driving so fast and we were both so driven by fear. And I don't think either of us felt safe until we got back to grandma's apartment. And I don't remember anything that happened after that. I just remember that intense fear and feeling like we were being chased, feeling like there was this dark presence hovering over our house and being terrified of going back there again. And I know even even at that young age, and I don't remember exactly how old I was at that time, I was maybe 10. And I just remember part of me in my head thought we, that when we did go back to the house eventually, I thought for sure that my mom would be murdered. I thought for sure that my father would have murdered my mother and we were going to find her body. And I'm obviously very glad that did not happen, but all the way back to my grandma's apartment, that's the last thing I distinctly remember is being afraid that I was never going to see my mom again because I was certain that the house had felt that way because Forrest had murdered her. And that's it. That's my memory of the day. Um, we'll see how it matches up with Autumn's and, uh, she and I are going to listen to each other's memories and then we will kind of do a uh, conversation for you guys uh, just to explore how different people's memories can really be of the same, same situation, the same event, the same day. All right. So you now have heard my memory and you have heard Ivy's memory of the exact same historical event that happened. And Ivy and I have now both independently listened to these memories, and we are ready to now analyze some of the splits and differences and to really start highlighting how that works on this personal level of having so many different memories when you come from a dysfunctional home or a traumatic past. And we've actually done this a couple ways, and there's actually going to be two parts to this episode. Now, the first part of this, we're only going to be releasing on Patreon because it is a lot more personal. And that part is an exploration of the differences between Ivy and myself and the differences between how we were treated in the household and how that affected the differences in our memory. So if you're interested in that more personal take and that more in-depth look at how did we end up with such different memories, 
please, you know, support us on Patreon, head over to our Patreon page and check out that special piece of the episode. Now, the second piece, which is what we're going to be exploring today, is the specific differences. And of course, we're going to be looking at, you know, how did those specific differences come about? And of course, how does that reflect and shine upon and highlight those ideas of having those different memories when you do come from a traumatic home or a dysfunctional family. Because I think it is very confusing for a lot of people that don't go through these environments, haven't lived through these environments, when you have so many different realities coming from what should be a singular reality. Because so many people believe that there is a truth and there is a lie, and that's all there is to it. But as you've heard with Ivy and I, that's not necessarily the case. And this isn't even something her and I disagree with or an argumentative point. This is just simply how we remembered it. And because we were treated differently, because we are different people, because we have differences in neurobiology and how we were treated in the family, we came out with two different memories. So let's dive in. All right, so I'm going to I'm going to jump into some of the specific differences and we can kind of do the comparative, the side by side. So the very first thing I noticed is that I, of course, I, I mean, because there's just a huge chunk of time and I magically teleported into our house and we're just there now. <laughs> I didn't have the experience where Ivy and her memory says we found out they were getting divorced before we even went to the house. I have no memory of this. My memory is very clearly of our father in his garments. Like I almost have a visual of him standing in the hallway by the kitchen telling us. And that's the first initial time I heard they were getting divorced. And so Ivy says that she remembers us being at grandma's, which would actually make more sense because I'm like, how the fuck did we get there? Because Ivy and I often spent the weekends or holidays, you know, time off with grandma and so that would make sense that we were at grandma's and so i i just i that was the first thing is i have such a clear memory of the first time i heard this being dad in his garments in the hallway telling us and you're saying nope they called us beforehand so when you heard that split what were you like what what were your thoughts on that I found that very interesting. Like, I expected there to be quite a few differences in our stories. I did not expect that one because I have no memory whatsoever of Forrest being in his garments that day. Uh, <laughs> I have no memory of him coming out and announcing he was divorcing our mother. However, what I will say is that I don't necessarily think that either of our stories is incorrect. And here is why I say this, because our father abused a lot of prescription medications just like mom did it would not shock me in the least if he had forgotten that he had told us that morning and then come out in his garments high as hell and announced it because in my mind i'm also like that's really fucking weird dude for you to come out in your underwear in front of your mother-in-law to announce to your mother-in-law and your children that you're getting divorced. So it would not surprise me if both of those things happened. I'm not saying they did, um, but it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case because I have lots of memories of Forrest being high as a kite on prescription medication that he stole from his clients or was given by his clients. So 
it was interesting to me that you had that memory and that it's so clear for you because for me, it is so clear that it happened the way I remember. And just on a practical level, I specifically remember spending Christmas Eve at grandma's because we knew grandma would be coming to the house for, for Christmas day and she could not drive. So we intentionally stayed at her place on Christmas Eve so that we could drive her out to the house without having to go out there in the morning to pick her up and back. So I remembered that and I remembered specifically that we had just had breakfast. What I don't remember is whether we called them to let them know we were on our way or whether they called us. I just remember standing there in the kitchen. Grandma and I were both standing there in the kitchen, if I remember correctly, and you were on the phone and grandma had the, the, the phone that was like hanging on the wall with the long cord and you were standing there talking and I could tell something was wrong by the way that you were acting, even though I couldn't hear the other side of the story. And then you hung up the phone. I'm pretty sure it was you and not grandma, but whether it was you or grandma, regardless, I remember that hanging up of the phone and then I don't remember how it was said, but being informed that our parents were getting a divorce and all of us were kind of in shock. And we went into grandma's room and we were all sitting on the bed. And I remember grandma either calling him a bastard or calling him a son of a bitch, but just cause that like struck me cause grandma never cussed. And I remember her saying that and recounting that story about him throwing our brother across a room when he was a child and she never liked him or trusted him after that. I remember that so clearly because I'd never heard grandma cuss. I'd never seen her that angry before. And I remember feeling very conflicted because I still was incredibly loyal to our father in a lot of ways. So it was weird for me to hear grandma talking that directly about what a horrible person he was because that was like challenging my perception of my father it was just a, it, that whole thing i remembered that so clearly so it's interesting that you had a completely different memory of how we were told and now i can't help but wonder if both of those things happened and maybe i wasn't around at all when you had your memory of being informed because i have no fucking clue where i was for most of that day and that's and that's what i say like i think again with this, the reality is then lost. Our mom's passed. Our dad is the, still the same way he's always been. So I don't think we would ever get an honest truth out of him. And our grandma's passed. And even when she was alive, if I had been able to ask my grandma, you know, what when did this happen? She's also going to be emotionally charged and have her own perceptions. And I don't know if she would have a clear memory. So at this point, when I come in and I say, it's so hard for me to believe in universal truths, whether it's a religion or whether it's just he said, she said, whatever it is, it's so hard for me to believe in universal truths because Ivy has this clear memory I don't have. I have this clear memory Ivy doesn't have. Yet in my mind, just like in hers, I think both of them are true. Even though I was probably present and Ivy remembers me being present for what that first memory of us sitting on the bed and three of us together, me, her, and grandma, and I have no memory of that, I still cannot discount it. I still believe that her memory is accurate, but I still believe that my memory is accurate. And this is why it gets so confusing and so difficult in that traumatic and dysfunctional household. And I think also this is part of why sometimes you've got to throw the, the idea of universal truth out the window, because once it's passed, there is no universal truth in these households for a lot of it. And I know that's horrible. 
And, and, and in some cases, you know, something either did happen or it didn't happen. Yes. But with a lot of these, these details and these secondary things, there's no way to know. And this is compounded by the fact you know, before we get too far into this, and part of the reason I don't believe in universal truth, there was this psychologist, Elizabeth Loftus. And back, I think it was in the 90s, she did this study on how easy it is to implant false memories. And th there's a lot of controversy over this and the significant, you know, was it statistically significant and all that. But what she did was it was just very easily, there was this thing and it was like, oh yeah, and your parents remember you got lost in the mall this one time. You know, what do you remember about that? And they were instructed that if they didn't remember anything, they were just supposed to say or write that they didn't remember anything. Well, there was a good portion of the people that all of a sudden had these very drastic memories. And if I remember right, when they followed up later, they had they'd created these things about they talked to this security guard officer about it and these feelings of fear and this nice lady that helped them out. And they had created all of this stuff that their parents were able to clearly verify had never definitely happened to this child, all because somebody said to them, well, yeah, your parents remembered you got lost in the mall this one time. And now all of a sudden you have this seven-hour narrative memory from it. So it's so easy to implant memories in people's lives. And, and, and again, the statistical significance of that is still being argued to this day, but I think part of it goes back to, well, what was the background of these people? Because this is the other part of why I have so much trouble, you know, agreeing to this memory or that memory or honestly standing by my memory and saying, yes, I am correct in this is because there was so much gaslighting that happened with emotions and thoughts and what I say and what they said. It was always questioned. It was always invalidated. It was always gaslighted. And when you grow up being constantly questioning, wondering, am I accurate or not? And then you go into college and you learn how easy it is to shape and alter memories. I'm like, how do you even trust anything you remember? Do you have thoughts on that, Ivy? I kind of came to terms a long time ago with the idea that reality is a very subjective concept. I don't believe in absolute reality or absolute truth at this point because I very much believe that each person is kind of their own internal universe. And so everything they experience is going to be colored by their perceptions. And you can start to believe that something happened that may or may not have ever happened. And everybody's perception is going to be very different. So like, I gave up the idea of a, a universal reality a really long time ago. And honestly, it's, it's made me, um, very drawn to uh, quantum physics and string theory and the multiverse theory and everything. So I'm like, maybe all of this shit did happen. And it's just like parallel realities and we're shifting in and out of different realities. And maybe, you know, 10 people in the same room watching the same thing happen, have different memories because they were all existing in some parallel universe. Fuck if I know, but I don't believe there's one reality or one truth ever at this point. I just made peace with that a long time ago. I'm just like, well, that's your reality. It doesn't match with mine, but that's your reality. And I, I trust that that is legitimately what you remember. Cause I remember all sorts of things that may or may not have actually happened. <laughs> it's so, and, and the crazy thing is like you, you brought up hospital. So, so you brought up also that memory of grandma swearing and that one time grandma swearing and the crazy thing is, I also have that memory. I have the memory of grandma 
swearing about our father. I don't remember her recounting the tale of her uh, of him throwing our brother across the room in with that but for whatever reason it's associated with that and that's the weird thing with my memory so i remember grandma swearing i do not remember her recounting the tale of john being thrown across the room but even though i remember grandma swearing the memory of the story of my brother being thrown across the room is associated with my grandma swearing but i can't tell you why and so when I hear Ivy say this, I'm like, okay, that would explain why that memory got associated with that, because apparently it was a chunk of that that I just don't remember. And and that's the crazy thing, though, is like I have that memory of grandma swearing, but it's not associated with the day they got a divorce. And I was trying to figure out, well, what are the reasons for this? Like, why would there be a difference? And I think part of it for me is because grandma's was a safe haven. Grandma was like you know, when you're playing tag and I'm on base and so you can't tag me, grandma's was base. That was the only place I was safe. That was the only place I had a break. That was the only time I was okay. And I honestly, truly believe at this point and have chosen to believe because you got to choose what you're going to believe at some point, what Ivy said is accurate. I believe that phone call happened. And I believe for me, because grandma's is a safe place, I did not allow that memory to sully my safe place. Mom and dad shit cannot come here because if mom and dad shit comes here, I have no safe place and safety was vital to me. And the only way to protect that is to say, nope, that didn't happen. Just, just shove that away because that's going to threaten our safety. And if we threaten our safety, fuck it all. I'm not going to remember that. And so I picked something else throughout the day, which like Ivy said, probably happened. And again, I don't fucking know where she was all day and she doesn't know where she was all day. For all I know, she was in her room or our room. And so she didn't see it. So I, again, I think both things happened. I'm very much, I'm very much right there with Ivy on that. <laughs> you know, I would be now like after doing this, I would be really curious to see what our brother's memory of finding out that our parents were getting divorced was because he was on his mission from the Mormon for the Mormon church at the time. And so he was not actually physically present there, but from what I recall, and I don't know if the rules have changed now for people who are on their mission, but if I recall correctly, there were, I think two times out of the year that a missionary could call home. One was mother's day and one was Christmas. And now I am wondering if he attempted to call home and if he did call home, if he talked to mom, if he talked to Forrest, if anybody said anything to him, did he find out in a letter? Like, I am very curious now what he remembers of finding out that our parents were getting divorced. So that's, that's another interesting layer of things too. Yes. And then with that too, and I don't know if you remember this or not, but the rules doesn't, they don't apply to us. That was always how it was. The rules don't apply to our family. And so even though when you're on a Mormon missionary or you're a Mormon missionary, you're on your mission, your family's not allowed to come visit you and you're not allowed to go visit them without like serious, like somebody's in the hospital going to die. We as a family went and visited John on his mission. I have no idea how that was allowed or why that was allowed, but that. I remember. So even if, yeah, yeah I remember so. the loophole that was used was because they had just built a temple in the district that our brother was a missionary in. And so we went to see the temple open house and dedication 
and were allowed to see our brother because he was serving his mission in that district, in that city. That was how we made that happen. That was the loophole that was used because our family fucking loved a loophole, just loved a loophole, just went after that shit. <laughs> well, the thing is with that, though, too, is part of why we went, because I, if again, if my memory is accurate, was because something about they were getting divorced or there were issues. And we ended up having a conversation with John and our family and I want to say like his mission president or something in the room. And so I also feel bad at this point for John because he's out trying to live his life because John is still Mormon and he very much believes in that. And he, and as far as I know, he always has. And so he's trying to do the right thing by his moral code and participate in this. And our family is coming along going, oh, no, you don't get to escape our shit just because you're serving God. You don't get to escape our shit at all. We will follow your ass, even though it's not even allowed to pull you back into this. And I've always felt so, so bad because he's supposed to be focused on that. And and even though I'm not Mormon, I totally respect that he wanted to do that. And I totally respect his drive and his moral code to do that. And we should have given him the freedom to just focus on God and just focus on his mission like quite literal mission in his mind and we're coming and and we're just spraying our family shit on that for him you know it's funny that that's your memory of that situation because i remember us going i remember it being because oh well the temple's opening up there so we can see your your brother while we're there i remember that i remember the drive there because forrest drove all night long to get there. It was just a one shot go. I listened to the same album the entire time, my little cassette player with my, with my headphones. And I even remember which album it was. It was the sound, the second soundtrack for the show, Allie McBeal. And I listened to it all the way from Missouri to Montana. And I remember getting to the hotel. It was a, a super eight and you and mom and I went out, I think, to get food or something. And Forrest passed out asleep on the bed because he'd driven all night. And I remember him <laughs> talking in his sleep, just like gibberish about like something that didn't even make sense, like an ice cream truck or I don't want your ice cream truck or something like that, talking in his sleep. And we were all like, that's weird. So I remember that. I remember going to the temple for the dedication, sitting through that. I remember going to a bookstore, like a Mormon bookstore there, and getting a necklace that had little mustard seeds in it. And I remember going to a restaurant with our brother and I think his missionary partner. And there was some sort of like... I think it was called the purple cow and there was some sort of like food challenge there and our brother did it purple cow yes i, I totally you say purple cow and i'm like purple cow i, re purple cow, I, remember, I remember all of those details but i do not remember at all this discussion with the family about any issues i don't remember that in the least, but I remember all of these details, like the second soundtrack to Alan McBeal, and that we stayed in a Super 8, and we went to a restaurant called The Purple Cow. I remember all of those details. I have no recollection of this conversation that you talk about, although I feel certain it happened. 
because it would make sense that it would, because you're right, there's no way that our brother would be allowed to just live his life and not have to deal with our family's bullshit. But I have no recollection of that happening. It's so fucking weird what people remember about things. It is. And it's just like me. I'm all like, phone a friend. Can we get John in this live? <laughs> I don't want to bother him, though, because he's got his own things going on. But part of me is like, phone a right? friend. Okay, so now, the next piece I want to go to is something that it could not have both happened. I, I don't think. Or maybe it just continued. Because you remember opening presents as our dad bitched about our mom to our mom's mother, I remember very clearly sitting at the table. And I remember the table because it was this big old farm table, kind of set up picnic style, and there were two benches. And I remember the hard bench under me. And I remember grandma to my side and Forrest across from me. And he's eating while he continues to bitch about the food and looking over at grandma with her lips just pursed and shaking almost with this just I don't know what at him and this situation but not saying anything but then in your memory you're saying we were opening presents and this is happening so so where are you at with that Ivy In the same place I was with the last memory which is I think both things could have happened because I remember Forrest bitching about mom all the time like a huge portion of my childhood and even in my relationship with him, which again made it so like felt like I was a mistress or a replacement for mom or whatever was because most of my memories of Forrest, anytime mom was in the picture was him talking horrible about her, putting her down, calling her a whore, like all sorts of things like that. Like I remember Forrest never saying a good thing about our mother at all. So to me, it is not, necessarily impossible that both of those things could have happened and you and I are just remembering different parts of the day what is interesting to me is I don't remember eating at all I don't remember food I don't remember like I I know it probably we probably did eat I would assume because we went out there for that purpose but I don't remember anything about the food, which is interesting to me because food has always been my safety. Like I hoarded food when I was a kid and I had eating disorders and stuff like that growing up. So it's interesting to me that on this very traumatic day, you're remembering the meal. And for me, who always turns to food when I am stressed or depressed or whatever. I always turn to food. I have no recollection whatsoever of there being any food that day. None. Well, in your defense, I think the food was really shitty. So, because they said I remember, and, and I think part of it was grandma and me were trying to get through by focusing on other things and we were focusing on the turkey. And I think we left the turkey in there so long. It was like dry as a bone. <laughs> So if I remember that right. So with this specific thing, too, I wanted to bring up is you were talking about grandma and why you think she didn't say anything. And I kind of attribute it like I attributed the whole fact we were having the dinner to grandma's autism that we had set the expectation. And so we will follow through regardless of whether or not the Armageddon happened. You have a meal on things. You know, that's what I attributed it to. But you were talking more about you think he had all of us walking on eggshells and I started looking like that. And I'm like, you know what? That makes so much more sense because our grandmother was 
a good person. And she did come from, you know, she's she's older. She was born, I think, in the late 20s, early 30s. So that this generation, I think she went through the depression. So it had to be sometime in the 20s that she was born. And, you know, you're a woman, you don't have power. But at the same point, she was a single mom. She made this work. She took care of her mother during the dying days. She managed a household. This is a very competent woman. But again, she had a lot of anxiety and a lot of autism and wasn't likely going to confront anybody. I mean, when you walk down the street, she'd cross the street so she didn't have to wonder whether or not you should say hello or not say hello or not or not not or make eye contact because that was too much for her. But I feel like she would have defended her daughter because that doesn't that that's always kind of been weird to me that she didn't. And I think Ivy was right that I think Grandma was partially in fear of him, and I think that's why she recounted that memory of. Forrest throwing John across the room. I think there was honest to God fear in her of him. And I got to thinking about it more. And I'm like, that to me explains two things. One, why grandma was allowed to be present because Forrest isolated us from everybody else. And why we were allowed to have Sunday meals at grandma's house as a family. And I really think that was Forrest's time to instill that fear and instill that control into everybody because otherwise he had no interaction with grandma and if you don't have interaction with somebody regularly they're going to start seeing you as less of a threat and they're going to start going more towards the right thing in their moral code and grandma's moral code very much would have been to protect us because she was a functional person even if it's not love and all of that it was take care of base needs and ensure security and i think she would have done that but I began to wonder, was Forrest doing that to grandma? Was he lording that power and checking in on that regular basis to keep her under the thumb, to keep her as part of this defective unit? Because he didn't allow us to interact with any normative, healthy people that would have gotten us help. And I think grandma would have gotten us help had she been... You know what I mean? What do you think, Ivy? I think that whole thing is so multi-layered. Uh, I, I think on some level we were all afraid of Forrest because Forrest did have a violent streak. Um, I, never, I never saw him directly hit anybody. I will say that. But I did see him get violent and break things and throw things. I recall very distinctly one time him and our brother getting into a fight and my brother went into his room and slammed the door and Forrest got so angry. He went and punched the door so hard. It flew in off of its hinges and broke the door frame. So I remember being very afraid of Forrest's violence streak, even though I did not feel like he would actually physically hurt me and I never saw him physically hurt another person. I still remember being very fearful of his violent outbursts. And obviously grandma had witnessed at least one violent outburst on his part. And I don't know how much of it was her being afraid for herself, how much of it was her being afraid that he would do something to mom if she challenged him or do something to us. I don't know how much she like, because if that, if that was the only violent outburst she had ever seen of him was watching him throw our brother across a room then it would stand to reason that she would believe him fully capable of doing physical damage to us or to her or to mom. So I do think fear was part of it. I also, though, I do feel like there is a generational layer there with 
the, the expected roles of men and women and women are supposed to sit down and shut up when it comes to men. Because yes, grandma was fully functional and was capable of being a single mom, but she was only made a single mother because our grandfather ditched her, ran out on her. And I always got the sense that grandma was generally fearful of men or at least deferred to men did not stand up to them did not say no to them because I, I have a couple of memories of like older gentlemen like and they were nice to her but older gentlemen talking to grandma and I think maybe they were trying to flirt with her maybe and she would just kind of shut down and find a way to politely get out of the situation or I remember going to a restaurant with her a couple of times there's the lunchbox cafe and the guy that ran that place was this big jovial guy but whenever he was around, even though he was very nice and he was very, you know, funny and outgoing and everything, I remember grandma looking physically tense around him and looking down and just being uncomfortable when he would do nice things for her even. Like, cause I think there were a couple of times he gave her a discount or let her have something for free. And she was very uncomfortable with that. And I always remember anytime I saw grandma around men, she was uncomfortable. And I can't help but wonder if there's a generational layer to that as well. And I wonder how much of that also had to do with her being forced into being a single mother because her husband ran out on her. And even in when our grandfather showed back up for that brief period of time at the end of his life and mom was taking care of him and he fed her that fucking bullshit story about being a POW or whatever. And grandma knew it was a lie. And yet she didn't say anything to mom. And part of me thinks, I'm sure, okay, part of that was letting mom have some sort of positive memory and association with her father. But I also wonder how much of that was that, that generational thing of a woman not stepping on a man's toes. I don't know. I know I, I probably have some warped viewpoints on things like that because having lived with our Aunt Rita and hearing lots of stories as well from our father's side of the family and the fear that everybody lived in of our grandfather and how that probably contributed partially into how Forrest became who he was. And so I had, I have very distinct views of men and women on a cultural social scale, but also specifically in our family. So I'm sure some of my viewpoints on this are skewed by this overall picture that I have of men and women in our family. And I think this points out uh, uh, something also that we need to bring up about, you know, the the memories and the differences in them in traumatic and dysfunctional homes. Because you're like saying, I think my data is skewed by this overall picture because you got access to a lot of data I never did with Aunt Rita. And specifically the incident you were talking about with our grandfather coming back and him being a POW, I got access to that data because grandma and I were very much more like peers. And it was actually a really positive relationship. I, I love my grandmother so much. We were really good friends. And so my, so my grandma, grandma actually discussed that with me. And I remember her talking and she was, she was livid about this. Um, grandma didn't get angry too often. I don't know that you ever saw her besides the time she yelled out, dad, get angry, but she did on occasion get emotional. And that was one of those times. And she was livid about it. And I remember that whole discussion and she was hurt because she had done so much for our mother and yet never got that return love from her. And she was so hurt because he had deserted her and he had done horrible things to her. And now she was taking care of him. 
And I remember having the discussion with that of she wanted to tell mom so bad that he is a liar. She had documented evidence of letters the government had sent her telling grandmother that he was in prison on our side because he was black marketing things and talking with me about, should we take, should I tell her? I want to tell her like emotionally, I am so frustrated. I'm so angry and I'm so livid about this that I want her to know the truth because I need to feel justified, but I love her and I know this relationship is important to her and I don't want to damage her last view if she can have that. So that's so crazy to me because again, it points out that you get such different information. Your grandma would have never talked to you like that. I don't think she displayed emotion in front of you like that. I never had the opportunity to talk to Aunt Rita at all. So you have all of this data about certain things and I have all of this data about certain things. And so it's totally going to shift how we see things, how we perceive things, how we remember these things, because we have different, we have different information that the other person would have never been privy to. And because like we talked about earlier, everything's closed doors and everything's hush hush. I wouldn't have even thought to tell you what grandma has said. And I don't think for a long time you've ever thought to tell me much of what Aunt Rita said, because that was between you and Aunt Rita. And this was between me and grandma. <laughs> You know, what's also interesting about that is that part of the reason I didn't really tell you much about what was about what transpired between me and that writer and the, the information I got from her is because when I think of you, I don't see a connection between you and Forrest at all. Even though we live in the same household, even though yet yeah, he's your father too, I don't see a connection between the two of you whatsoever. So it didn't occur to me to really share that information that I got from Aunt Rita because I'm like, well, Forrest isn't relevant to Autumn. So why would she care about his upbringing? Because she doesn't care about Forrest. And I, I don't know if the same thing applies for you, vice versa with grandmas, because in a lot of ways, like grandma and, and mom both were, I wasn't close to either of them. Like I have tremendous respect for our grandmother, tremendous respect for her. I probably have more respect for that woman than I have ever had for another person in my entire life. I think she was a saint of a person, to be perfectly honest, but I was not close to her. We, we did not understand each other. I was so in, even though mom and I weren't really close either, I was so much like mom. I don't know that grandma really knew what to do with me any more than she knew what to do with mom. And then mom and I were so separate for so long because Forrest pitted us against each other. So I don't know if maybe the same thing applied for you where it didn't occur to you to tell me much of anything that happened between you and grandma because, well, that wasn't really relevant to me because that was definitely part of it for me with you and what I learned from Rita. It's like, why would I tell Autumn this stuff? She doesn't give a shit about Forrest. Why would she care about his upbringing? I think that is true. Like, not necessarily that you didn't give a shit about grandma, but it was just like, well, it wasn't relevant. I mean, you had other stuff going on. <laughs> I think that was the other part too. Like, even if you do overcome the hush-hush thing, you look at the other person, especially once we got out of the traumatic, well, in the traumatic household too, but you get out of the traumatic household, you're trying to like deprogram, but you're going insane and life's falling apart. And now I'm living homeless or my car's broke down or I'm in this bad relationship or whatever it is. And you look at the other person, you're like, yeah, I don't think this is really relevant to let them know right now, because what does it matter when they're worried about putting food on the table? <laughs> Yeah. Also, when when our grandfather was living with us at the end of his life, I was also still quite young. I don't remember exactly when it was, but I know there was at least a few years between when he died and when our parents divorced, which means I must have been quite young. What maybe, may, maybe I would have been in 
fourth or fifth grade. I don't even fucking remember. I don't like, I don't remember directly like timeline as far as this happened in this year and this happened in this year. I remember details of events, but I don't remember what year they happened or what month they happened in. So it might also have been that you didn't think to tell me because I was too young for it to really have registered for me. And it's also possible because I was a blabbermouth as a kid. It's possible that I might have told mom. And if grandma had decided she wasn't going to tell mom, of course, nobody would tell me because I probably would have run my mouth to mom about it at some point. One of the things you just spoke, that was another thing I wanted to point out today is neither of us can remember exactly what year this is. It was sometime around when I was 18. Uh, John was gone on his mission. I was getting close to college. I couldn't even remember if it was Thanksgiving or, or Christmas. Um, and like you said, you can't remember what age. Like I remember our grandfather being there. No concept of when. And I found this is actually true even to this day. I have no memory of dates. I can't assign things. I can assign it like with well, I was with this spouse or that spouse at the time. But if you want me to say what year it was, I have no idea. That's like, <laughs> I literally rely on my resume <laughs> because I can remember which job I was with, with which spouse. So if somebody needs to know a year something happens, I pull the resume out and like, okay, I was working at Lowe's and Lowe's was between this year and this year. Do you think that's specific to the dysfunctional and traumatic household that we were so isolated that even time was irrelevant? Or do you think that's just something with the being neurodivergent and we don't look at time the same? Cause I've always wondered about that. I don't know. Time has always been like a weird concept for me in general. I'm not really sure where that stems from. And I never really thought about it too clearly. I, time overall has always been kind of a blur to me and knowing specific time frames for things has always felt kind of irrelevant. Like, I don't see why it matters for the most part. There's very few situations in which I'm like, yes, time, knowing the exact date that this happened is super important. I, I That's part of why I'm horrible at remembering people's birthdays. Even when I remember what date their birthday is, I will often miss it by a few days because I'm just not paying attention to what fucking day of the month or week it is. If I didn't set reminders for myself, I wouldn't remember that I had clients. And I still don't pay attention to what day of the week it is. The only day of the week I am consciously aware of is Sunday, because that is the one day of the week I know for a fact I never work. Because Calvin and I spend that day together and we do our grocery shopping. And I look forward to grocery shopping all week because I still love food a lot. <laughs> If you are listening, I would love to hear from you on, on any of it, like, you know, contact us on the different functional website, you know, on the social media. However, I would love to know if if you come from a dysfunctional traumatic home, especially if you're not neurodivergent, do you have issues with remembering specific time and years? And then, and then if you are neurodivergent, do you have difficulty? Because I've always wondered about that. Like, how does that play in? Is that more the trauma part? Is that more the autism part? You know, when you have so many things going on, you're like trying to be like, well, which one is it? it, it it's not like super important, but it's just, it's always made me curious. What what part of me makes me so blind to time? You know, one, one thing that might account for some of that is because our family was so isolated, you got pulled out of school at a pretty young age. I was in and out of school so much. We had very few things that were actually structured. And even when we had some degree of structure, it wasn't constant. Like there would be periods of time for like six months where we would go to church every Sunday. 
And then we would have like a couple of years where we didn't go to church at all. And, you know, sometimes I would go to school and sometimes I wouldn't. And you were pulled out of school completely, like what, two weeks into your eighth grade year or something like that. So I think part of it is because you and I had no structure whatsoever. Our parents didn't really have that much in the way of structure. So there's no reason for us to know specific dates for things because we didn't go anywhere. We didn't do anything. Our father just was gone all the time. Mom was very seldom gone, especially towards the end of their marriage because she was just passed out in a room somewhere most of the time. I think time just blurred in together for us because there was no reason to have any distinction between day to day. That that totally makes a lot of sense. I just, yeah, I, I'm always curious. And it always shocks me when people are like, oh yeah, back in 2012, I was like, and I'm like, how do you connect that to a year? That always shocks me when I hear that. Or when I'm watching all the, like, because I love watching crime dramas like Law and Order. And they're like, where were you on March 4th of this year? And I'm like, how did you even know it was March 4th, let alone where you were at that year? So, but anyways, moving on from that. Um, another difference in here that we had talked about was I said that I had checked on mom at some point. And you said that you didn't think anybody checked on mom. And so here's the reality of this piece. And, and when I did my intro to my, my preface to the memory, I said that part of my memories are best guess assumptions. And this piece is a best guess assumption. I do not have a memory of checking on mom at all. I assume I would have checked on her because it was my responsibility to take care of mom and make sure she was alive and make sure she fed herself and got up and went to the bathroom and didn't make a mess in the bed. And so I assume that I would have checked on her. And so I put that as part as the narrative. And I think I may have even said something like, I think I, or I may have, and, and I kind of disclaimed it, but I don't have a memory of it. And so I don't know. But I put that out there as that makes sense that I would have because that was my role and I usually did. So I guess I did. I, I don't know if I did or not. I think it's probably entirely possible that you did. I know for a fact I did not check on mom because I was afraid to. First, I was afraid of mom, but also I was afraid because mom had tried to kill herself so many times. I was afraid that under this amount of duress that she would have done it, just overdosed on pills. And I did not want to find her dead body. That that idea absolutely terrified me. I To this day, I am terrified of dead things. Like, you know, a lot of people, they see roadkill or whatever. It doesn't really phase them that much. I'm freaked the fuck out by dead things. I, I can't handle being around it. And I think it's because I spent so much of my life fearful that I was going to find my mom's dead body because she was constantly threatening suicide and because I was there for a couple of her suicide attempts. And she almost always, to my recollection, went the overdose kind of route. And so I spent so much of my childhood being afraid of finding her dead body. I know for a fact there's no way in hell anybody could have gotten me to walk down that hallway and into that dark room where she was to check on her. But I do not doubt for a second that you went to check on her. I am really curious, and we'll never know, I am really curious if grandma checked on her at all or not. But I know for a fact I never did. And see, like, it's, I think it's very possible that it, nobody did because, like, with Forrest being there, I may have felt like I was not allowed to. And then my alliances would have been really threatened because I loved grandma and she was safety. And luckily, I didn't have to be around mom and grandma that often, but I was also supposed to take care of mom. But if grandma's upset, I would have wanted to been with her. 
And so I don't know if I did. And I doubt grandma would have checked on her because mom and grandma had a really weird relationship. And I think grandma wouldn't have, not because she wasn't worried, but because she would have felt she wasn't wanted or, and, or she wouldn't have known how to deal with the emotion of it. Um, and, and one of the things you brought up, and this is kind of in regards to that, is you said you remembered almost this like dark barrier of energy around mom's room. And that was not something that was in my memory. But as soon as I heard you say that, I was like, yes, 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 that. Like when you said the purple cow, I had no memory of the purple cow. But when you said it, I was like, yes, 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 that. And part of me is all, okay, do I actually remember that? Or do I really want that to be part of the scenario? Like, does part of me feel guilty that I may not have checked on mom? And so I want to be like, oh, there was this dark barrier of energy. That's why I didn't. I'm not a bad person. Or is it that I just didn't happen to remember that, like the purple cow, because there's no guilt associated with the purple cow that I know of. And so when you said it, it just popped into mind. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that part of the memory for me it could also be put into a generalized sense as well, because I often felt that way about mom because I was so afraid of her and her moods were so volatile. And there were, like I, I mentioned in my memory, multiple times as a small child where I honestly believed our mother was possessed by something because not only did she not seem like my mom, she did not seem human. And so I often felt like there was this dark barrier of energy around her and towards the end of our parents' marriage, when our brother went on his mission and my, and, and our mom took over his bedroom, it became even worse. And part of that was because all of the bedrooms on that side of the house, well, the two bedrooms, your, my bedroom, and then our brother's bedroom, because the house was built into the side of a hill, those rooms had no windows. Our parents' rooms had, room had lots of windows. And so it didn't feel as dark when she was in there. But towards the end of their marriage, when John went on his mission and mom took over his bedroom, it became even darker because it was the at the end of a long hallway. So already the darkest corner of the house. And then she would go in there and lay on that bed and turn out the lights. So it's pitch black in there. And it seemed like sometimes she would be in there for days in complete darkness and not come out. And it just made it even more terrifying to me because I was already afraid of the dark. And then I was afraid of mom. So you combine those two things. And now I'm just terrified to even go near that room. And I remember after mom took over that room and she, I think she was in there for quite a while, like almost as soon as our brother left on his mission, it was like she moved into his room and our bathroom the only bathroom in the house was right across the hall from our brother. And I remember when I would go to the bathroom, as soon as I would come out of that bathroom, I would either leave the bathroom light on or I would have turned on the hallway light on my way to the bathroom or I would run like hell down the hallway. Sometimes even if the lights were on, I would run like hell down the hallway because I was so afraid of our brother's room and mom being in there. So that could be a generalized memory for me because I always felt like there was this energy boundary between mom and I that I could not get close to her because it was too frightening. Now this, and, and I do agree with that. And like the eggshells, I know you brought that up and I didn't mention that in my memory, but I felt like that was like always. So I know those are generalized, but one of the things you said that was more specific was you had the fear at the end of the day, like when we came back, that you were afraid that mom had been murdered. And as soon as you said that, what was another thing? I'm like, I felt that way too. And again, I question, and this is 
those differences in memory and all of that. And this is why, especially in a family, it can get so complicated because I don't remember initially when I'm recounting this or I thought about it before, worrying that our mother had been murdered. But as soon as I heard my sister say that, I thought instantly, I felt that fear too. And so then that, again, gets into why you get the he said, she said, and alliances and all this different stuff in dysfunctional families, because roles aside and dyadic relationships aside, something resonates with one person or another. And so person A has a memory, person B didn't have that memory, but then they hear person A say it, and now they have the memory too. And then person C is like, oh, well, you don't really remember that. That just got put there by person A. And it, it gets really complicated when you come in a traumatic household because we all know how that is. Like somebody will just bring something up like, oh, and we were in that car and somebody's like, oh yeah, the red one. And you're like, yeah, it was red or that movie. Oh yeah, I remember that now because that's how memory works. Somebody triggers it and it happens. But especially if you believe, you know, that Elizabeth Loftus study, sometimes it also happens that somebody says something and it implants it or it changes it because memory is malleable. And so this is how also that dysfunctional home, that traumatic background, memory gets so much more complicated because when you do talk about it, it shapes it and changes it. And that's part of why Ivy and I wanted this memory because we hadn't really talked about this ever before because a lot of the memories we have talked about with each other, we've come to a general consensus of what we believe is reality and now when we reflect back, that's the memory we have is a shared memory that was created between us. And especially even now, now that Ivy and I have talked about this, you ask us in another couple of years, you know, well, what do you remember? I'm probably now going to remember the conversation that we had on the phone. And Ivy may even now remember eating the meal. But today, if you listen to the podcast, she doesn't have that memory. I don't have the other one. But together, we're working to create and shape this shared memory. And, and, and I wanted to speak to that. And I wondered if you, if you wanted to speak to that also, Ivy, that idea that when you do come from a dysfunctional home and you finally are able to discuss the memories, even though they're different, when you do talk, it almost creates yet a new memory. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true for not just not just dysfunctional families, but any situation in which, especially if you're close to the person that you're talking to and you both went through the same thing, if you are close to that person, I think there's even more of a likelihood that you're going to assimilate some part of their memory into your own and it will actually create something in your own mind as being true, whether you initially remembered it or not. I think it's very easy for the brain to pick up on those things and say, oh, yes, I remember that now, too. And the closer you are to the individual that told you that, the more likely you are to, I, I think, anyway, the more likely you are to take on that, that memory because on some level that it now has become part of your shared experience. And there is that human desire to increase intimacy and closeness with people you're already close to. So absorbing and taking on part of their memory of a shared experience is another way to develop further intimacy with that person. You know, and I think that brings up another good point though, like you said, because a lot of times in families, you do have these divided loyalties. Like I wanted to be loyal to you, but I also needed to be loyal to mom. And I think that also creates some conflict, especially if you stay in touch with your family after you leave these is so I talk with, let's say mom 
and she has this memory and now I have a shared experience with her because I want to be more intimate and close to her. But then I talk to you and there's a different experience and I have that shared experience with you and it's totally separate. And I think this does a couple of things is one, I think it starts dividing people because at some point for a lot of us, we have to choose, well, somebody had to be right. And so we end up choosing what we think is right and it makes us closer to that person and it divides us from the other people. And I think the other thing it does too is it it really makes us question ourselves even more because a lot of us that come from abusive backgrounds, we're gaslighted. And so we're already, or if not gaslighted, invalidated. And either of those things make you question yourself so much. And then when you try to join in and I have this memory of the experience with mom and I have this memory of the experience with you and I now have this incongruence and this cognitive dissonance, it makes me again start like, well, am I insane? Am I the wrong one? Am I going crazy? You know, or can I even be trusted? And then it leads into with that, invalidating your own abuse or invalidating your own trauma, especially when when the abuser or the tra traumatic enforcer, whatever you want to call that, is a parent or is a loved one, you want to love them and you want to maintain an intimate connection with them. And because this stuff is confusing, like with our mom, we still love her. We, we want to be close with her. We want her to be this wonderful mother. And there were so many great things. And we want that connection and, and we don't feel like it was intentional or she was manipulative about it. But at the same point, the abuse did happen. But because you want to love that person and you want that connection, you start invalidating your own experiences and sometimes altering your own memories because what do you, what do you value? Do you value the relationship and trying to connect with them or do you value your own sanity? Where do you place all this? It's just a mess. I don't, I'm not even sure what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I get what you're trying to say because it's it is your memory of things over time will shift based on to some degree the level of closeness you have with an individual person or whatever and like loyalties shift and when loyalties shift your perceptions of things shift and your memories of things shift and then you start to question yourself and then you start to question your own motivations and you start to question the entire experience in and of itself so i i think that is part of the difficult thing, one of the many difficult things about being from a traumatic and dysfunctional family is that reality is never concrete. You can't ever fully trust your memory or the memory of anybody else. You can't ever completely trust that what you know is true because it will butt heads in significant ways with other people in the family. I know a lot of my loyalties, and I will willingly admit this, a lot of my loyalties began to shift when, when, I, when I was living with my Aunt Rita. I really wanted to believe that ultimately he was still good and I was still blaming mom for a lot of things. That year that I lived with Rita, I did not speak to our mother at all. I was so angry at her and I thought I never wanted to speak to her again. But living with Rida really started to shift a lot of my perspectives about what had happened in our household and, and learning not just about what happened in our household from a different perspective from an outside observer, but also getting her perspective of 
her upbringing growing up with Forrest, what their parents were like, gave me a completely different perspective of things as well. Because then I saw Forrest inside of a bigger picture and I saw the connection with my grandparents and how they had treated him and how they had treated the other kids. And it made me have even less sympathy for our father. And I'm like, after living with Rita, talking to her and then getting a little bit of perspective from some of the other siblings in that family, I was like, Forrest is a fucking liar. That son of a bitch. He lied to me about everything. And so that that really started to shift my loyalties. And then when I did start talking to mom again, and she actually was accountable for herself and accepted what she had done and was apologetic and tried to make amends and did not push anything on me. So I will admit that at this point in my life, my loyalties have shifted completely and my loyalties lay almost exclusively with the women in my family. I am slowly letting my brother back in because I understand he was victimized in a lot of the same ways that we were. But I will admit I am having a lot of issues right now with the men in my family. I am not a man hater or generally an angry feminist. I am angry at the men in my family, especially my father and my grandfathers. And so that makes my memories admittedly skewed in favor of the women in my family. I will admit that. I know that's true right now of me. And I kind of want to address this because if you come from an outside perspective, and you haven't been through this and you've not had the struggle of realizing that everybody has their own reality and stuff. There can be this question of like, well, if you don't know, how can you accuse that person or how can you ruin their life? Or maybe you shouldn't say anything if you're not totally sure. And and I think this is where, it, especially with Ivy, because you, you heard her, she was very firm and she's very confident in her belief of these things. And it's like, well, you're just talking about doubting your memory. How can you now be so sure? And I think that's the piece of it. And this is how you work with it is you get a lot of different input from different people if you can. So in Ivy's case, she talked to our, our dad's sister. That's our Aunt Rita that she talks about. She talked to other siblings in the family. She got a larger view picture. And then also you look at, for me especially, the facts of the matter. And so if our father had been, like, let's say a, a blue collar factory worker, or maybe even he was an accountant, or maybe even just a regular CEO, I may not have thought as I do now, that what he did was intentional. But our father, from all accounts by everybody I've talked to, friends, family, patients, he's a very intelligent man and he's very smart. And so if you're intelligent and you're a psychologist and you work with this, then how could it not have been intentional in my mind? You know, Do you know what I mean? You, you have the knowledge of how to help people as well as what comes with the flip side of how to manipulate people and how to hurt people. And so you have to look at the facts of the matter and you have to get a larger opinion. And with that, you then have to choose because that's ultimately what it comes down to with any reality in my mind is choosing what you're going to believe and choosing what makes sense for you and choosing what's going to be of most benefit. And again, that comes also to Ivy, what she said of how those people that hurt you are now interacting with you. And that was another fact of when I attempted to interact with Forrest or bring up this stuff, it was always somebody else's fault and it was always not on him and there was always an excuse. And when I brought up the trauma and the abuse with mom, our mother owned it. 
She said, yes, I did that. Or if I don't remember, it's quite possible I did. And she apologized for it. I think that's the most vital piece for those of us that have been through that dysfunctional family and that traumatic environment. If you want to have relationships with those abusers, because they are family and we do still love them, is how are they acting with you now? How do they own it? And, and that's really how you move forward. Because memory aside, you do get different memories and there are different realities and everybody disagrees. And at some point you have to agree to disagree, but it's how does that person interact with you now? Do they own it? And even if it wasn't extreme, even if it was just mild invalidation and that was very traumatic to you, is that person loving enough of you and willing to recognize that, okay, you know what? I didn't intend to invalidate you, but I can see your perspective and I can understand how that hurt. And I am sorry for the pain that was caused. And I think that's really the biggest piece of moving forward. If you're listening to this from an outside perspective of how do you choose and how do you become so firm and how do you become so confident? It's, it's the bigger picture. It's the logic. And then it's the, how are you interacting with that person now? And how is that person treating you now? One last thing that I want to know and this is just a random curious question, is both Ivy and I remember coming home that night and we remember being dead silent. And yes, it's Christmas time. And yes, it's winter. So there's a lot less nature sounds and we live in the country, but there was always noise. There were coyotes. Any time in our childhood, we had 20 to 30 dogs, 20 to 30 cats, parakeets, all sorts of different birds and animals in the house. Where were they? Like, that's part of the memory. I'm always like, how is this even possible? Because when you drove up, the dogs all barked. Dogs barked all night because the coyotes and the skunks. How did we come home and it was so silent? We had inside dogs, outside dogs, birds. I, there were trains in the background you could hear. I always wondered that part. How do we both agree that it was so dead silent? <laughs> I don't know. I, I wonder about that, too. Like, when I was recording my memory prior to listening to yours, that was... What's what's interesting about it is because of all the things that I remembered from that day, I was the most reluctant to share that last part of the story because I'm like, I sound crazy. And what if I remember this and Autumn has no recollection of this whatsoever because it was so surreal and so odd and the feeling was so intense that I just thought, what if I'm the only one that remembers this? Because it's so intense, surely Autumn would remember it, but if she doesn't, was it a dream? Did I have some sort of like break from reality? What was going on there? So I was actually reluctant to share that part of my memory because I was afraid you weren't going to remember it and I was going to feel crazy. I don't know how it was so silent because you're right. There should have been the sounds of lots of animals. We always had lots of animals and it was the middle of the night. Forrest snored so loud every single night you could hear him on the other side of the house no noise whatsoever, dead silent, almost pitch black. It felt like you mentioned in your memory, like a horror movie. That's what it felt like. It felt to me like the house was infested with fucking demons and that everybody was under control of the demons. And that's part of why I was so afraid that mom was going to have been murdered. I literally thought that mom was dead. I expected that if we went down that hallway and either went into our brother's room or our parents' room, that there would be blood on the walls. 
I really felt that way. And it felt like it was not even human. And I know that sounds crazy to anybody who doesn't believe in that kind of stuff. But to me, it felt like it was inhuman. It felt like we were in fucking hell. It was terrifying. I've never felt fear like that. It, I, I agreed. I haven't either. And to me, the fact that it was so much silence, I mean, if this is reality and we weren't just, I don't know, in shock or whatever, to me, what it felt like was we had stepped into a different level, a very negative level. Like we had left our plane of existence and stepped into this isolated bubble that was our house and had to have been our driveway. Because again, if you come down the driveway, it's a long driveway, dogs are barking and running and there was none of that. In, in my memory. Uh, and so it felt like we had stepped into another level of terror, evil. Like I said, I, I can't even explain it. But if you think about what a horror movie is trying to induce in you, that is what it felt like. And th that was and that was part of why I was so terrified to go anywhere else in the house because I was afraid, afraid I'm going to just go deeper into this pit of whatever this is. And I did not want to remain in that almost parallel universe. That's not how I saw it at the time, but that's how I see it now. And then again, it just goes back to begging the question of, you know, what is the reality? Because how could that have been? Maybe it is. Maybe Ivy and I stepped through something. Maybe the negative energy that was all of the dysfunction became so concentrated and so quintessential at that moment in time that it literally overtook everything and everything scattered. I don't know. But it, I, I'll never know. I'll never know what the reality of that was. Was it silent? Were Ivy and I sharing a psychotic break? Did her and I just somehow manage to create the same memory having never talked about this? I have no idea. And I'll never know what the actual truth is. Yeah, I'll never know the actual truth either. But it is one of the few memories that has stuck with me my entire life that I can still feel as intensely right now in my body, in my emotions, as I felt in that moment. And it again, like I mentioned earlier in the episode, like part of me has become a believer in extreme theory and multiverse theory and everything. And that memory is part of why, because I'm like, I can't explain what happened that night in any other way. Because yes, our, our childhood home was terrifying a lot of the time, but this was something entirely different. I have never felt what I felt on that night. Not before, not since. I have never felt that kind of fear. It has never felt so much like I have walked into a different reality. It really felt like somehow a fucking portal or a doorway or something, a goddamn wormhole opened up and the concentrated negativity and hatred and pain and everything that had been in that household possibly even before our family moved there because i don't know about you but i always thought that house was creepy and i had weird experiences yeah. in that household so i always thought the energy of that house and the property was creepy to begin with but it was like every negative thing that had ever been felt or done on that property was concentrated in that house at that moment and on those grounds I've never felt anything like that before. And I hope I never do again. It, it's, I, I've never felt terror like that. And it is impossible to really describe. It is something that you can only 
know by experience. And I hope none of you experience it because it's fucking awful. I hope I never experience it again. I still have nightmares about that night. It is awful. And and I feel on some level it must have happened because, again, we've not discussed this. We both have that, that both had that terror and the sitting back to back. And so I'm just going to wrap this all up today because I think we have probably gone a little long. But I would really love to hear from any of you out there that have come through the traumatic family, uh, the, the, the dysfunctional home, about your thoughts on this, of how this is with the split memories and the different memories and how that's affected your life and your take on it and your input. And if you maybe thought of anything new listening to us today or if something new occurred to you, we would love to hear from you. And Ivy will tell you all the many, many ways that you can contact us. Okay. <laughs> I, I forgot I had to do this part. Okay. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as different functional. You can find us on Twitter as diff underscore functional. You can find us at our website, www.differentfunctional.com. We are also on Patreon as different functional. And I think that's all of it. Pretty much you can find us anywhere as different functional. We're the only different functional out there that I am aware of. Yes. Yes. And so please, I would, we would really love to hear back from you and get your input on these things and maybe do another episode down the road where we have more people's input instead of just Ivy and mine coming from this one single isolated environment. And as always, you know, if you do enjoy us, we do encourage you to support us on Patreon. You know, it, it does take time and it does take effort and we love doing it, but we would also love having more time and energy and resources to do this. So if you like us, please reach out to us on Patreon. It's, I think it's as little as $5, I think is our lowest setting. Yeah. $5, $10 fifteen dollars is uh, our our levels but you you do get perks it's not just because uh, like I, I notice a lot of the patreon pages where it's like the lowest level that they have it's like you have our eternal gratitude no you get perks for all of our levels so there's there's that <laughs> if you like us enough to want our perks there's that <laughs> so yeah so you get additional perks and you get to support our awesome podcast so um thank you everybody for listening and as always just remember that different does not mean defective My